Romans chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on and... The settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved... Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. And to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary, for years. If necessary, alone. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. This is what I'm going to call a footnote episode. And that's what I'll call an episode that really does not fall within the scope of the season. Right? We're in the middle of season one of this show. We're talking about nationalism. But what do we do if we want to briefly talk about something else? Well, that's what a footnote would be for in a book, and that's what it's for here. Now, in the last two episodes, we discussed the Abbasid Caliphate and uh, both its rise from the revolution against the Umayyad Caliphate and its eventual collapse into a collection of successor states. Now, up until that point, pretty much everything we've talked about have been things that I've personally had an interest in for some time. And the Abbasid Caliphate, I had also been interested in, but prior to preparing for those episodes, I had not really read much beyond the very broadest historical basics. And what I ran into was there's a good reason I hadn't, and that's that this is an area of history that's really for specialists, at least if you are an English speaker. There aren't a lot of good English language sources on that time period. And this made it really frustrating to record anything about it because I ended up having to use textbooks, basically. And textbooks are very dry. There is not a lot of character to them. And that made me think of two interesting questions when you're studying any historical subject, and that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, these two questions are, first, what level of detail do we want to look at? And second, what English language sources are available to us? And that can become a hairy issue, right? I don't mean, by the way, when I'm saying this, I don't mean for professional historians, right? People who have PhDs and access to a university research department and partnerships with other universities and all of that stuff, right? I mean the average person who is trying to study uh, some historical subject they're not familiar with. Uh, if you don't have good sources in your native language, you're more or less out of luck. But you know, first, let's step back and talk about different levels of detail. Because right? that really kind of plays into the whole language thing, as I hope will become clear. Uh, 
if you think of history like a photograph or a video, you're looking at it in a certain resolution. Right? It might be very sharp and finely detailed, or it might be more like an impressionist painting, a broad stroke. Uh, and each of these levels of detail has its own merits, right? For instance, suppose we wanted to tell the story of uh, the Eastern Front in World War II. Well, if we went through and recounted the day-by-day -day experience of each individual soldier, we would never finish. So it is necessary always to simplify to some extent. And we can simplify a great deal. Right? Uh, here's an example. I can summarize the American Revolution in a sentence. King George raised the taxes, the colonists revolted, France helped, and America was born. Okay, so that's like a sentence with four subclauses and some commas, but still, you see what I mean. I hope you also see that that one-sentence summary was grossly oversimplified, right? You just can't get any kind of nuance if you're summing something up to that extent. But sometimes you have to sum things up to that extent. Uh, sometimes you even have to take things for granted. You always have to take things for granted. If I am going to tell you the story of the Vietnam War, I would not start with the first uh, members of the species Homo sapiens crawling down from the trees, right? I would start, you know, maybe with troubles in French Indochina or something like that. And then prior to that, I might give some really broad strokes, right? I might say, yes, in a thousand years before that, you know, the Chinese had tried to invade. Those Vietnamese, they've had people trying to colonize them for a long time. So that type of very broad stroke can still be useful, but it, it's not really informative. Uh, now, if we're talking about military history, we could also look at uh, things on the strategic level. For instance, uh, going back to World War II on the Eastern Front, we could talk about uh, the German forces splitting into Army Group North, Center, and South, and the debate between whether to make a drive for the Ukrainian oil fields or whether to make a drive on Moscow. Uh, that type of conversation can also be really interesting. And it can also be crucial for understanding what's going on, right? Uh, to stick with World War II but move over to the war in the Pacific, if you don't understand that the Japanese Empire is facing a significant oil shortage, you don't understand that they have to seize some territory to remedy that and that that's why they have to go to war with the U.S., right? Pearl Harbor all of a sudden doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't understand what's happening on the strategic level. And then, if we want, we can zoom in a little bit. And why not stick with World War II, because that's where I seem to be pulling all my examples from? We could talk about the Battle of El Alamein and how Rommel 
and Montgomery faced off and Montgomery was able to outmaneuver Rommel. That's a little bit more localized. We start to see some individual people appear. And then if we want to, we can zoom in even further right down to those individual people. Earlier this year, I read a book. It was the diary of a U.S. soldier in World War II. Uh, This was just a regular guy. He was a private, uh, shipped off uh, to the European theater, fought in the Ardennes. But when you read this personal history, it's engaging in ways that these broader bird's-eye histories are not. Right in the diary I read, this soldier has a friend this friend who he makes in uh, boot camp, and then they ship out together, and uh, they they didn't fight at Normandy. They weren't in, in the landing. They were with the troops who followed up afterwards. But then, you know, they did see frontline service, and, and they went through all of this together. And when his friend dies, right, that's not the same thing as, you know, talking about a battle and saying, well, the... British lost 13,000 men at Al Alamein, and the Germans lost 59,000, right? It's personal. It's his friend. And we see other details that might get glossed over in the bird's-eye-view histories as well. Uh, This soldier talks about uh, being on the receiving end of a German artillery barrage uh, in the Ardennes, uh, which is a forest, by the way, in France. And because it's this heavily wooded terrain, uh, when the shells come down, they oftentimes strike trees, and these are you know high-explosive shells slamming into trees and exploding. Well, not only do you have... Uh, pieces of metal of the shell casing flying everywhere, you then have giant wooden splinters flying through the air fast enough to impale a man. The wood splinters flying through the air outnumber the metal shards, and it's terrifying. Right, That's just not the kind of thing you get to see when you're talking about how many big guns one side or the other has in a artillery engagement, right? It's personal. And, you know, in looking at all these levels of detail, we've only really been talking about military history. My goodness, there's so much more going on than just, you know, wars and battles and fighting, right? Uh, There is the study of political history, The study of what is going on inside a country. Oftentimes, that's way more interesting and way more important than what's going on between countries. Think of the causes leading up to the U.S. Civil War. Well, yeah, there was a big, bloody war that was hugely important for the history of the United States, at least. But the history leading up to that... Uh, the history of the abolition movement, and even the history of slavery itself uh, as a domestic, shall we say, political issue, 
that is, in many ways, uh, something that transcends the Civil War, right? We had a war. There were lots of interesting battles that military historians can diagram and tactics that people can continue to debate until this day, but the issues of slavery and racial inequality and all of those related matters, well, those happened before and after the Civil War, not just during it. Uh, and that's a different kind of history, but it's equally important. Uh, we could talk about uh, similar international politics, right? The relations between countries, right? When people talk about the lead-up to World War I, they talk about a breakdown in diplomacy, right? The breakdown of the Bismarckian alliance system that had kept the balance of power in Europe uh, in such a position that there wasn't a major war for 40 years. Uh, that was the most peaceful Europe had been in quite some time. And it wasn't because anybody had big guns. Well, it was, but it wasn't because they used them. Uh, it was because of diplomacy. And it didn't hurt that Queen Victoria's kids had married into pretty much every royal family in Europe. Again, though, diplomacy, not war. And we have cultural history. Right? So far, we've been talking about governments and leaders and armies. And you know, even if we're talking about politics, we're talking about you know, elections and civic issues and you know, either things that people fight over or vote on, uh, depending on your system of government. But there are many aspects of human history that have absolutely nothing to do with the government or the king or the army or anything like that, right? We have cultural history. We can look at how arts and literature develop. You have an entire field of academia called art history, just studying the history of art. But art can give you insight into the people of a particular time, right? To use a literary example, look at the Canterbury Tales. Now, the stories contained therein are not historically accurate. They're fantastical and whimsical. But the way the characters relate, the way they talk to each other, the way they engage in everyday activities as the stories are being told, all of this tells us a thing or two about what it was like to be an average person uh, in 14th century England. A good example of an actual history book that does this is uh, Colin Woodard's excellent book, American Nations. And that is a cultural history of the United States and Canada where he talks about how uh, different parts of these nations were founded by different groups of people and have distinctly different cultures. Uh, looking 
at a slightly different angle, we might talk about social history, right? Just how do people live? The average person in a given time and place gets up out of bed. What do they see? What do they do in the morning? Uh, an example of this type of history would be Mary Beard's book, SPQR. She writes a lot about daily life in ancient Rome. For instance, she talks about how in the apartment houses, we think of Rome as all big, beautiful marble buildings, but that's what's left after 2,000 years. You know, most people in the city of Rome lived in wooden apartment buildings that have long since burned down or simply fallen down or been scrapped or whatever. Uh, but she talks about life in these apartment buildings and how uh, the most expensive apartments were the ones on the ground floor. Uh, that's kind of counterintuitive when we think about apartment buildings today where the luxury apartments are way up on the top floors. But, of course, these were ancient times. You didn't have air conditioning. Right? Heat rises, so... If you were inside your apartment during the day, it certainly helped to be on the ground floor. And you didn't have elevators, so if you had to carry stuff in and out, which you would have to do all the time, you would really rather be as close to the ground as possible. Uh, and those are you know, just the kinds of little details that Mary Beard is able to provide uh, through her study of ancient Rome. Right. We can even talk about historiography, which is the history of how history is written and developed. So let's say uh, we talk about the Hundred Years' War. Right? If we were doing a military history or, or really any other kind of narrative history, we would just tell the story, right? Well, if we were doing a historiographical study we would instead look at the history of how the story has been told. It's a little bit meta, but it's actually really important. Uh, if you remember, going back a ways now to our, our very first episode, we talked about uh, the Jewish rebels in the first Jewish-Roman war, but we also had to talk about our source, Josephus, because he was one of the rebels and he switched sides partway through, that's going to influence how the story is told. Uh, that's a, a very basic example of historiography. Uh, now, what we're trying to do in this show is to talk about the history of ideas. Season one is nationalism, because I thought it's a really important idea, and because we live in a world of nation-states, mostly, you have to understand nationalism to really get a bird's-eye view of history, and it was also a good opportunity to just provide some context for some of the major historical events we might want to look a little closer into later on. That being said... There's no one kind of history or Zoom level of history that exists in isolation. For instance, we can talk about the Punic Wars, where Rome fought against the Carthaginian Empire. 
and we can talk about how Hannibal annihilated more than one Roman army in the field, and how the Romans more than once replaced that army entirely. And we can understand from Hannibal's point of view how this might be frustrating, but if we really want to understand how the Romans were able to do that and how the Carthaginians were not, we have to understand a little bit of cultural history, right? The Romans have this uh, militaristic Latin culture, uh, a never-say-die attitude. Uh, If you're going to beat the Romans... Uh, the only way to do it is to destroy them utterly. Because otherwise they will keep coming back and fighting, at least in this era of history. On the other hand, the Carthaginians at this time were a Hellenic society. They were much more trade-oriented. Most of the Carthaginian armies were made up of mercenaries because the Carthaginians themselves at least until the bitter end when their homeland was threatened, the Carthaginians themselves were hesitant to fight. When you understand those differences between the two cultures, it starts to make sense why they fought the way they did and how the Romans were able to muster such military strength. And in the particular case of the history of ideas, if we're going to be talking about ideas... Geez, talk about a dry subject. You want to hear something exciting? We could talk about the history of contemporary American leftist politics. I mean, we could start with the writings of the early Christians and the Essenes who practiced communal ownership, and then we could jump forward to the French Revolution. Not talking about the revolution, mind you. Just talk about the ideas. Maybe read some political pamphlets from uh, Jean-Paul Marat and uh, his anarchist buddies. And then, you know, read some Marx, some Lenin, some Trotsky. Uh, Move on to Stalin again. We don't talk about anything they did. We'll just talk about their ideas. Wow. By the time you get to the 1970s and you're talking about social democrats and uh, you know, the uh, equal rights movement, everybody's going to be asleep because you lost them by just droning on about ideas. Now, on the other hand, if you weave in a little bit of narrative history, that becomes fascinating, right? The weather underground, the extremists who bombed Wall Street in the 1970s. Well, there's an interesting story. How about the fall of the Romanov dynasty, right? You want to talk about some impact from communism, and I mean not some abstract historical impact, but some real human impact? The story of the fall of the Romanovs is really tough to beat, right? The story of the young princess... Anastasia alone has captured the imagination of generations of people. Now, there's a story that has some weight. And if you can tell that story and you can weave in some politics and talk about the ideas and how they influence that story and maybe how the events of that story 
influenced the ideas in turn, all of a sudden you have something that's worth talking about. So the long and short of it is that we have to be able to look at history at a variety of zoom levels and from a variety of angles. We have to be able to paint a colorful picture. Which brings us back around to where we started, with the availability, or lack thereof, of English language sources. For example, the American Revolution was a war fought between two English-speaking sides. Not exactly. The French, the Spanish, the Dutch, they were all involved on the side of the colonies as well. But for the most part, at least if we're talking about the land war, the people who were there were English-speaking, which meant that we got a lot of primary sources written in English. And more importantly, on the non-military side, virtually everybody spoke English, right? You may have had French and Spanish soldiers who played a part, who were indeed crucial to the American war effort, but they were not living in America before and after, or should I say they weren't living in the colonies, before, and they weren't living in America after. Right? They showed up, they fought in a war, they went home. But if you want to talk about the cultural or social history, right? everybody's speaking English. We have diaries, we have letters, and we have stuff that is still being discovered today. Uh, if you haven't, check out the... Uh, television show Turn, Washington Spies. I think it's on Netflix. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. It was an AMC show. I think it's still on Netflix. Anyway, it's about the Culpeper spy ring, which for those of you not familiar, was a ring of spies based in Long Island during the American Revolution. Now, the reason this spy ring was so important was because they could see ships and troops and supplies coming in and out of New York Harbor, which was the British uh, base of operations in the colonies. So this spy ring was incredibly important, and a lot of information, including the identities of most of the people in the ring, has only been figured out within the past 20 years. This is very recent stuff that has come to light uh, thanks to uh, some analysis of some letters and other documents that were left at the time. Uh, and we end up getting a fantastic show. I don't recommend historical shows lightly. I'm a stickler for accuracy. Now, you know, if you're a stickler for costumes or something like that, I can't speak to that. Maybe they botched all the uniforms or something, but the historical events, uh, as I understand them, were presented uh, true to the real facts. And we're able to have that 
really uh, nitty gritty look at history because of all these sources. Now, if you had an equivalent spy ring in, say, a uh, Russian speaking country, well, if you didn't speak Russian, you wouldn't be able to engage with that content. Okay, you say? Fine, I'll just watch the TV show with the English subtitles. Well, that's fine, but are you able to go back and verify the things you saw on the TV show by reading the actual letters? Are you able to read a book by a Russian-speaking historian who talks about the events of the time from a different perspective than the TV show, from a factual perspective and a non-entertainment perspective. It all of a sudden becomes a lot harder to learn anything really useful beyond the basics. That's what happens when you don't have good sources. You get a copy of a copy of a copy, and the characters are flat and stale, And it's boring. And while I was re-listening to the first episode on the Abbasid Caliphate, I realized, my God, I recorded this and I'm ready to fall asleep listening to it. So, sorry for inflicting that on you guys. But that got me thinking, right? After all, this is not just an informative program. This is also meant to be entertaining. So, why not entertain? And when we can, why not jump to the next interesting story? Why do we have to take history chronologically, right? We're talking about the idea of nationalism. And we can talk about that in any order. I'll try to stick to the chronological record when necessary, but for the story I want to tell next, that is not necessary. We're going to talk about a tiny nation that punched above its weight and stood up to an empire. We're going to talk about the Serbian experience in World War I as the tiny nation of Serbia faced off against the Austrian Empire. But to tell that story, I wanted to have some good sources, so I ordered a book on Amazon, and we'll talk about it a lot during the episode, but long story short, this book that should have been here in time for me to start recording now, is not going to be here until the episode should have been released. So, this Tuesday, you are getting this episode as a consolation prize. And as soon as I get my book, I will be recording the next episode. And it's probably going to be a two-parter. We will start with the origins of Serbia and go all the way through World War I. You can expect the first of those episodes to appear in your feed on December 15th, and you can expect the second one to appear on December 29th. So you will get the entire story 
before the end of the year. So help me, unless the book is delayed again. Thanks for listening.